Welcome to the Grace College Podcast, a ministry of Grace Bible Church located in College Station, Texas. We desire to impact students who will impact the world for Christ. Hope you enjoy the talk and hang around for more after. Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. My name is Kyle Cox, and I am excited to be with you guys here this morning. Um, a little bit about me. I, uh, I came on staff, or I graduated from A&M in 2013, and I uh, came on staff with Grace as a fellow for my first uh, two years in the college ministry, and then switched over to the outreach ministry as a third-year fellow, and have since this last year come on staff full-time in our outreach department. Um, and this year has been a really exciting year for uh, a number of reasons. The first, I got married in January, uh, which was really exciting. Hey, do you mind switching the slide back there? Uh, that's my wife, Chamilla Panilla, or her name was Chamilla Panilla. It is now Chamilla Cox. It is unfortunate that it has changed from Chamilla Panilla to Chamilla Cox, womp womp. Um, and Chamilla and I, well, we will be traveling overseas next year uh, to go overseas to Greece through crew. So we're in the process of preparing for that right now. So we are both really excited. Um, so we're in Luke chapter 15 this Ah, oh, Sean Davidson, thank you so much. What a man. For the record, it wasn't his fault. I forgot it. So that's like a big no-no in preaching. Oops. Um, so we're in Luke chapter 15. So if you want to turn to Luke chapter 15... We're going to start in verse 12. So Luke chapter 15, sorry, verse 11. So Jesus is speaking to the crowds and he says, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here without, with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired hands. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, off his father saw him and felt compassion. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is now found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and spoke to him, but he answered to his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends." But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to his son, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. 
It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead, and now he is alive. He was lost, and now he is found. So when I was in college, I had a roommate named Elliot. And Elliot and I are uh, like second year of knowing each other as roommates. We, uh, we had a lot of tension between us, and so we decided to uh, release this tension with passive-aggressive pranking. And so what, it started small. I would put water cups on his door, and he would open the door, and the water would fall on him, get him all wet, stuff like that. Um, and he would put glitter on my fan, so when I turned on my fan, the glitter would just go poof, and I would have like green glitter all over my room. But it started to escalate. So eventually, it got to the point where he got so angry that he threw, threw a giant jar of mayonnaise on the ground, and the mayonnaise exploded in our house. Um, and after this, in my anger, I took a can of hairspray and a lighter, and uh, I used it against him, not wanting to kill him. I just wanted to hurt him. Um, <laughs> and so... In doing that, the can exploded and uh, got the floor on fire, and then suddenly the floor just shot in a blaze, and the whole apartment was now on fire. And uh, so we're freaking out, trying to put this fire out, and we finally, the, the fire trucks come, it was a big ordeal, they, uh, they put it out. But at this point, our friendship is not doing well. And then there was something that just pushed this tension over the edge. It was a woman. And so what happened is, Elliot liked this girl, we'll call her Blah Blah. So Elliot liked Blah Blah, and uh, Blah Blah liked me, but I kind of didn't know what I felt about Blah Blah. I was like, oh, you know, I don't know, maybe. And so in my tension with Elliot, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go on a date with Blah Blah, just one date, and I'm not going to tell him about it. So what I did is we went to dinner, and as we're talking, and if you were to ask her today what was the most awkward, uncomfortable date of her life, she would by far say this date. Um, so we're sitting there eating, and who walks into the restaurant as we're eating? It was Elliot. And Elliot, he walks to us, and he says, hey, what's up? Because we were all friends and stuff. And he was like, hey, what's up? Can I join you? And I was like, ah, no, yo, you can't. And uh, clearly very uncomfortable. And clearly she was not happy that I had clearly not told Elliot about this. Um, so we called it off the next morning. Didn't work out between me and blah, blah. So a couple weeks later, Elliot comes to me and he says, hey, I'm going to ask out blah, blah, since, you know, it didn't work out between you. And I was like, that's great. And so what I told him was, what I thought was, yeah, it's true that maybe I don't want to date blah, blah, but I also don't want blah, blah to date you either. So uh, I thought, I'm going to sabotage this. So Elliot asks out blah, blah. What she says is, let me think about it. I hang out with Blah Blah one day, and I say, oh, hey, I heard Elliot asked you on a date. And she was like, yeah. And I said, well, you know, he asked out someone two days before, and he's just kind of asking you as a rebound, um, which I realized was completely, oh, boy, oh, boy, should not, should not have said that. Um, and so I went into the house, our apartment, and I was just like, please, God, and on your mercy and your grace, don't let her tell Elliot what I had said. And as soon as I walk in, he gets a call from her, and I'm like, please, God, in your mercy and supernatural grace, let her forget what I had told Elliot. Um, the irony is, is this was all happening on my birthday. So that was what was so funny about it. It was, it was my 20th-ish birthday. I don't know. And so Elliot, he comes in after this conversation, and he's like, hey, can we talk? And I was like, yeah, sure. And so we go outside in the back porch, and uh, he just point blank asks me, did you do this? And uh, I said, yes. And uh, there was nothing I could say. I, I Looked for excuses, but there was just nothing I could say. And I just owned up to it and said, yes, I did. I'm very sorry. And he said, hug it out. 
And so we hugged it out, and he ended up being the best man in my wedding. I was the best man in his wedding, and the rest is history. Uh, so it, was really, it worked out really well between us. Um, <laughs> she was also at our weddings, and we were at hers. So everyone's great. But the point is, not only do men resolve conflict pretty easily, uh, but it is also... <laughs> this was also a story of reconciliation, a story of redemption, a story of fixed relationships. And that's what we're looking at this morning, is we're looking at two people in this story, two sons whose relationship is isolated from their father. And what we're going to see is a story of reconciliation. So that's what we're looking at this morning. So to put context to this parable, what Jesus is doing here, he is speaking to a group of people. And in this group of people, there are two types of people. And the first type are those whose lives are a wreck, those lives who are broken. They're listening and they're struggling with sin. They're living fully in sin. So these are the sinners of the bunch. We have sinners who are listening to Jesus. The second group are the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they don't think this parable is for them. They think the parable is for these poor souls. Certainly not for them. They're looking at these broken people and they think, look at all these dirty, rotten sinners. And that's the Pharisees. They're just here to brag and judge. And so one group is very intently listening to what Jesus is saying and trying to understand him. Because Jesus is speaking like unlike any synagogue teacher that they have heard before. And the other group, the Pharisees, are there to criticize. So what Jesus is going to do through this parable is he is going to expose sinners to the wonder of God and expose Pharisees to their faulty thinking. And for the sinners, he will do this through the younger son known as the prodigal son. And for the Pharisees, Jesus will do this through the older son. But both have a significant need for the Savior. Both are isolated from their father. It's just one is isolated from far away and one is isolated um, who is disguised with his religious works towards his father. Okay, so one is isolated by rebellion. The other is isolated by self-righteousness. One is rebellion. The other is self-righteousness. Now, as we read this story, what we need to do, our responsibility is to, in light of these two sons, find out and reflect, who am I prone to be like? Do I have a tendency to drift towards the side of rebellion, or do I drift toward the side of self-righteousness? Because we all have a tendency to do one or the other. And so as we dissect this story, let's really reflect and ask God to reveal in us which side we are prone to drift to. And then we'll pull out the truth of God's grace uh, through the illustration of the father in this story. So in verse 12, it's a classic scenario. It's a son, a teenage boy who rebels against his father. Not unusual then, not unusual today. And this son, he says, I'm out of here. I'm gone. I don't like your values. I don't like your rules. The only thing I like is that you have money. So give me that, and we can both just live our lives. You'll be better for it. I'll be better for it. Let me just go. Now, this young man, he doesn't have a normal desire for independence. Excuse me, independence. He is essentially making a very disgraceful request to his father. He is telling his father, I wish you were dead. Because the only thing that I like about you is that, that you have money. And if you were dead, I would have that money. So just give it to me. Now here is the danger 
as we read this story, for a lot of us, we don't think, well, I, I don't hate God. I don't hate the Father. However, the danger here is I don't believe that the son one day just woke up and thought, yeah, you know what, I, I hate my father. I think two things led to this point, and it was a heart of ingratitude and believing a lie that a life outside of Jesus is more gratifying. And so for the danger for us is most of us don't end up or start out of nowhere in a place where we think, I hate the Father. But what we start to do is have a heart of ingratitude, and what we start to believe is a lie that life outside of Jesus is better. And so that could play out in a number of ways. That could play out uh, to a girl or a guy that you know would be a toxic relationship, but you think, oh, but that would be a lot more fun than not being with them. We believe a lie that something outside of Jesus is better when we look at pornography, and we think, no, I think this will satisfy more. And you see, it always starts slow. It's the slow steps of walking towards sin that leads us and results into rebellion. And so don't be deceived. You don't just wake up one day and hate the Father, but you start to justify and make excuses for small sin that slowly walk towards rebellion. And that's where this son ended up, and that was the progress of this son, and that very well can happen to us. So in, chapter, or in verse 12, it says the father divided his property between them. Now what Jesus is going to do here is he is going to draw a picture of how humans who are created in the image of God find themselves alienated from God as, of a, as a result of sin. So sin alienates us from God, from the only one who can bring us joy, from the only one uh, who can satisfy our souls. And in verse 13, finally, the son takes off and he regards it as permanent. It says he takes all that he has. The irony here being, of course, that all that he had was a result of the father's provision. The very mind that we could use to defy God is a provision from our father. And this son, he had a 21st century notion that money was God. With money, he thought he could buy freedom, but he bought bondage. With money, he thought he could buy access, but he bought the pigstein. With money, he thought he could buy influence, but he got loneliness. And finally, in verse 14, it tells us within a span of the verse that he had spent everything. He had spent it all. He was now helpless and hopeless. He was alone with no friends, no family around him. And a pigstein. So that's where, that's where this scene is leading, to his complete brokenness. And that is where sin leads us. Sin is always destructive, always. It always leads to brokenness. And so in verse 15, I think if this son, or excuse me, I think this son would look at this moment in his life as one of the most life changing discoveries, one of the biggest revelations for this young man was in the pigstein, and it's found in verse 14. He says he began to be in need. There's no doubt that need is something that this son had never experienced. The circumstances of his home life provided everything he could ever need or want, and so need was a new reality for this son. However, the need he had provided a significant opportunity to recognize and realize his need for the Father. His Father, the only one who has ever loved him, his Father, the only one who has ever provided for him. 
You see, it was good that this son ended up in the pigsty because he was finally able to recognize his need. You see, we all are created with need. We are all created to need our Father because our Father is the only one that satisfies. And the danger for us is this, is that if once we recognize that we have need, we could place that into something else. We could try to fulfill that need into something or someone else. We could get that awesome job. We can marry that awesome person. We can get the money that we want. We can, excuse me, we can get the fame that we want, but it all leads to brokenness. And what happens is when we see this, even in our biggest stars in Hollywood who have all that they want, they have fame, they have fortune, they have popularity, they have relationships that they, that they really push their need on. But we see it with all these Hollywood people who are divorced even months after their marriage. We see this as Jim Carrey tells us, excuse me, Jim Carrey says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they have ever dreamed so they can see that it is, not enough, it is not the answer. You see, even Jim Carrey, who is one of our great comedians in our time, arguably, uh, who is a great actor who has fame, who can get almost anything he wants, he says it's still not enough. You see, we can disguise our need by grabbing something else. We saw this in the tragic death of Robin Williams, who tragically took his life. And we look at that and we wonder, why? Why? You had everything. You had fame. You had wealth. Why would you take your life? So tragic. And that just illustrates so well um, and so tragically that we all have a need. And if we try to fulfill that need in something other than Jesus, it will always end in brokenness. Always. Let me tell you, Scripture says sin provides no absolute satisfaction. There is no ultimate satisfaction in sin. Sin will always lead to brokenness. There is immediate gratification, yes. There is immediate gratification in the self-righteous Pharisee who who looks down on others and immediately gets satisfaction from it. There is satisfaction in the adulterer for a second who has an affair on his wife or her husband. It's exciting to be in that new and secret relationship, but it only ends in brokenness. There is immediate satisfaction in the junkie who gets his next fix, but you see that will only end in brokenness. All sin moves towards brokenness. There is no ultimate satisfaction. It's like drinking salt water. It can never satisfy, even if it looks like maybe it could. We see this in pornography. When you look at pictures, it looks really good for an instant, but suddenly you find yourself having to look at videos, and then that doesn't do it for you, and then suddenly you have to look at grotesque videos. You see, we all look for the next best or great thing until we discover finally that nothing will fulfill that need that we have except for our Father. In Augustine, he made this so perfectly clear in his confessions. He says, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find you. You see, all our opportunities to live without our Father feels good for a little bit. But it is nothing but temporary satisfaction. It will always end in brokenness. It will not deal with the central angst that is within our soul. 
Our hearts become restless searching for something outside of Jesus. And it's, of course, we're restless because God made us for himself. And so in the pigsty, the son, he discovers that he has not run out of food or friendship or fame or prosperity. It's that he has run out on his father. The only one who has ever loved him unconditionally. The only one who has ever satisfied his soul. The only one... Uh, excuse me, the only one who has ever given him anything and everything he could need. That's who this son ran out on, and it resulted in brokenness. Now, no matter how far he tried to run from his father, he couldn't shake his father from his mind. And so verse 17, he says, it's the scripture says, he came to his senses, and in coming to his senses, he realized the reality of his situation, And he declares that I am going back to my father. I will tell him I'm not worthy to be called his son. And I will tell him that I will even be made a servant. I will even be made a servant. So, is he leaving this pigsty? Is he going to his father based on his guilt? No. Is he going to his father based on something he can appeal to in himself? No. No then what drives him back to his father? It's the hope of the father's grace. It's the hope of his father's mercy. He doesn't run to his father based on a guilty conscience. He runs to his father in hopes that his father will be merciful and gracious. The solution and resolution of our guilt is the recognition of his grace. So I think for a lot of us in the room, We can sin, and we can feel such guilt, and we can feel such shame. And our resolve is to, some reason, even sin further. And then we get to this point where we think we can't come before Jesus because we have outsinned him. And I think the son probably felt that too. But the son also remembered his father was unconditionally loving. And so he banked on The Father's grace. So we see what happens in verse 20. In verse 20, he runs to his father. He goes to his father's house. And what the story will do is it will remind us of a father who is restless for us. And so if you're in the room right now and you're you're feeling guilt, you're feeling guilt from sin, then this is a story you need to hear. Not of a father who is angry or harsh to the son who is defiled. Filed the family, but a father who is gracious and kind. Now the Pharisees, as they're sitting and listening to Jesus, you can imagine what they're thinking is when he gets to the father that this will be the I told you speech. This will be the you messed up speech. You messed up bad. But what's presented in this story by Jesus is the father's quick readiness to forgive his son with open arms and great anticipation for his son's return. So it says how it says that the father had saw him from far off. And so how did the father see him from so far off? Because the father was looking for him. And I love this picture. I think of it in this way that the father got up every morning at dawn and he just walked outside and he just looked out into the horizon and just thought and hoped maybe today, maybe today my son will return. Maybe today he'll come back. In great anticipation for his son. And so what happens is when he finally sees his son, 
He sprints towards him. He sprints towards his son and throws his arms around his neck and engulfs his son. And his son, remember, he smells like pig. The son had just defiled his house with prostitutes. The son just lived in a pigsty, and so he smells like pig. And yet the father, it says, kisses him and hugs him. The text says he was filled with compassion, and his compassion just flowed out of him for his son. You notice here that the son doesn't even have time to finish his prepared speech. His son was going to say, I am a sinner and I will even work as a slave. But he doesn't even have time to finish it because the father is just so excited and so joyful that his son has returned. So this father who is full of compassion, he then, with nothing that the son could have appealed to, he then asked the servants to come over and throw a party to give him a robe and to give him a ring. Did the son deserve it? Of course not. But why did the father do this? Because the father loved his son. I want you to know that God is a God and a father who is full of compassion. And he completely engulfs us in his grace. Despite our sinfulness that is so obvious, the father gladly shows his compassion and his mercy. It is overwhelming the love that the Father has for us. Some of us feel that we have sinned so far that we can't go before God. But Jesus' point here in this story is that you have nothing that you need to offer. You have nothing to offer. Some of us feel like we just can't go and we say, God, I just have nothing to offer you. And he says, I know, just come home. Just come home and I will take you as you are. You see, the resolution, as we said earlier, the resolution of our guilt is the recognition of his grace. So we say, what do I have to offer? And Jesus says, nothing. Just come home. And so we go in dirty, and he makes us clean. We go in thirsty, and he quenches our thirst. We go in broken, and he pieces us back together. And we ask, what should I offer? And he says, nothing. You don't have to be guilty and come to me. You don't have to appeal to anything in yourself and come to me. Just come to me as you are and I will forgive you and I will have compassion on you. And so the question for us as we read this story is why would we wait? Why would we wait so long to come to the Father who is anxiously seeking us out? Who is anxiously wanting our return? The fact is that we have all turned our backs on our Father, in a number of ways, but the good news is our relationship can be made right, our relationship with the Father can be restored, and the same, the same invitation that Jesus makes to these uh, people in his audience is the same one that this story would make for us, and that is to know Jesus and know you are forgiven, to come home and know that you are forgiven. We are sons and daughters of our Father, and He does not stop loving us. No matter how far we have sinned, no matter how far we have wandered, He says, I love you, come home. So from here, you can imagine the Pharisees are not happy. Because the Pharisees, what they thought, this was going to be the end of the the line for the sinners, These sinners were really going to get it handed to them, but they don't like the resolution. And Luke, he actually uses the word muttering. They were muttering about, as Jesus was telling the resolution of this young son, and they were opposed to what Jesus was doing. 
And so the Pharisees, they believed that if Jesus was really the rabbi, if he was really the Messiah, then he would have no dealings with sinners. You see, Jesus ate with sinners. He hung out with sinners. He was friends with sinners. And these Pharisees thought there's no way that a Messiah would do that with sinners. And so Jesus, what he's going to do now is direct his attention to the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees, they believe that salvation is through isolation. They believe that there are bad people in the world and we must rise above them. There are bad people and we must not be like them. There are bad people, so we separate and isolate ourselves above the rebellious, above the sinners, and in doing good works, we have salvation. And so Jesus, what he does now, is he uses the older son to convict the Pharisees. So why this older son, or why this younger son was isolated through rebellion, the older son is isolated through self-righteousness. He's isolated from his father, even though he's in close proximity to his father. So this older son, he comes off the field, and he sees a party going on, and he, he, he has to think, what's going on? He wonders why he's not invited. And interestingly enough, the text says he doesn't go in. And my interpretation of this is that I believe he didn't go in because he feared what he most did not want to happen, happened. He feared the one thing that he hoped wouldn't happen, happened. He feared that his son or his brother had returned. You see, he was enjoying the exclusivity of having the father to himself. He was the one saying, I'm here. I didn't leave. Look how awesome I am. Dad, I didn't leave. He's defiled you, but not me. He was enjoying this exclusivity. He did not want his brother to return, so he doesn't go in. In verse 28, it tells us that the brother was angry, and he, was, he refused to go in. And I think this guy really brings out the honesty in a lot of us. How many of us is it hard for us to celebrate someone we're envious of? How many for us is it hard to celebrate someone who got a position that we wanted, who got co-chair or exec in Impact or counselor in Fish Camp or, or an opportunity or got to date a girl or a guy and you thought to yourself, why not me? It should be me. How this played out in my own life four years ago when I started off as an intern here at Grace, uh, there was another intern who had the opportunity to preach. And I hadn't preached at that point. And I just remember being so envious of his opportunity and thinking, why not me? Why don't I get the opportunity? And so I made an excuse not to go to a sermon. I said I was sick or something. uh, Just because I didn't like that he was getting the tension that I wanted. I think a lot of us, that happens to us where we start to compare ourselves to others and think ourselves above them. This son, he brings out the honesty In us, he says, I'm not going to a party for a sinner. If anyone deserves a party, I deserve a party. I'm the one who stayed here and worked. I'm the one who's been faithful. How many of us look to other people and we disagree with their situation? We disagree with the decision that they made. And because we disagreed with that decision, we go and we trash the name of that person just because we disagreed with it. How many of us do this? And be careful, because as Jesus is telling the story, I think the Pharisees probably thought, well, yeah, that's not me. And I think for a lot of us, and this has played out uh, big time recently, for a lot of us, I think we can have that same 
resolve thinking, yeah, that's not for me, when in reality, it very much so is for me. And I have to be careful, because if I'm not, I can look at others who are staying here and think of myself not as a missionary, but think of myself as awesome. I've got to be careful not to do that, because it could be so easy for me in my mind to elevate myself over someone else. We must be careful, lest we be like this older brother. Do we gossip and talk about others? Are we disrespectful to our authority? In what ways have we acted like this older brother? And here's the the big conflict in this older brother. It's that he looks at this brother and he says, this brother didn't deserve a party. Does God owe us anything? No. So no, this man did not deserve a party, but that's the whole point, is we we get what we don't deserve, and we don't deserve what we get. You see, what these Pharisees misunderstood is that sin isn't just simply acts of wickedness or disobedience, but it is a heart of rebellion against the Father. And it is a heart that all humanity has, a rebellion against the Father. This is why David in Psalm 51, he says, create in me a clean heart. Create in me something new. And so these Pharisees, they think they are isolated above them, but they don't realize that they still have the same fallen nature as everyone else. The reality is none of us deserve God's grace, but he lavishes it on us anyways. He is gracious and merciful Don't you see? It is grace. It's grace for the self-righteous. It's grace for the Pharisee. It's grace for the broken. It's grace for the depraved. It's grace for the runaways. It is grace. It is God's grace for the self-righteous and the rebellious. We need his grace, and none of us deserve it. But praise God for his compassion and his love for us that he would lavish his grace anyways. So what's the answer to that grace? It's Jesus. And Jesus, who lived a perfect life as fully God and fully man, he died on the cross, taking the penalty and punishment of all of our sin, the rebellious and the self-righteous. And in doing so, he made a way by rising from the grave three days later, effectively conquering sin once and for all, that whoever believes in him would be reconciled and made righteous to the Father. It is Jesus. Jesus changes the heart of the rebellious, and he changes the heart of the Pharisee. He does both. And so my hope for us this morning is we would recognize where in our heart is our rebellion, where in our heart is our self-righteousness, and that we would cry out to Jesus, and we would ask him, make me more like you, Jesus. Make me like you because you you knew no rebellion in yourself. You knew no self-righteousness in yourself. You were just righteous. You were righteous. So Jesus, make me more like you. That's the hope this morning, is that we would not just focus on our sin, but we would focus on the grace of God despite our sin to make us more like Jesus. Oh, the love that sought me. Oh, the blood that bought me. And oh, the grace that brought me to his fold. So as the band sings one more song this morning, my hope this morning is that we would, in of ourselves, reflect and ask God to reveal our sin. 
And in revealing our sin, we would confess it to him. And we would ask him, Jesus, make me more like you. And for some of you in the room, you just need to feel the love and compassion that the Father has for you. And so my hope is as we worship, you would know that you are loved, that you would know you are forgiven, and you would know you've been bought by a Savior who who so compassionately took our penalty of sin. Let's pray. God, we praise you for being a God who loves us. We praise you for being a God who is gracious to us, who is kind, who is full of compassion, who has saved us. God, we praise you that this is a story of reconciliation. This isn't a story about a son who messed up and outsinned you, but it's a story of a son who messed up so deeply, and yet you still lavish your grace on him. And so, God, would you reveal in us this morning, God, the sin that is in our hearts, would you reveal that to us? And, Father, I pray we wouldn't just sit in guilt. I pray we would know we are made clean. I pray we would know that the resolution of our guilt is the recognition of your grace. Father, you are good. You are a good, good Father. We love you, Lord. We praise you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.